So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We're going to read verses 10 through 20. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Thank you very much, Becca. This is the word of God. In Mark chapter 4, um, and this will be over uh, verses 1 through 20, even though we just read the explanation of the parable today. But in Mark chapter 4, it says it begins with Jesus teaching by the sea. And there's a large crowd. There's a huge, huge crowd. So much where Jesus just figures, I'm just going to get into a boat and start teaching. Jesus did this a couple other times. And uh, so he, he begins his story. And he basically tells everybody, what I'm telling you today, you're dirt. And that's a good thing. You know, it's kind of a pejorative today, an insult today. But, you know, this isn't such a big leap for us because we live in an agrarian society here in Iowa in a, a, an area that agriculture is big. Many parts of the world, they, have, they don't know where their food comes from. We know where our food comes from. We're about to hit harvest time. And some of you, I will hopefully see on Sundays, but I know I won't see through the week because you'll be working those 20-hour days and uh, to get that harvest in. So when Jesus tells them about these soils, this is something that they know. They're an agrarian society as well. They are a society that agriculture is huge. In fact, while Jesus is preaching, it's very possible that behind them in one of the fields, they saw somebody doing exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Now, have you ever wondered why some just don't get it when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to so many things? Like, why don't they get this? Now, we say those we have that big question, though, when something dramatic happens, right? I mean, school shootings, 9-11, these kinds of things. What is going on? Where is the disconnect? What is going on with going? With what's happening here? When it comes to that, when it comes to the most important thing, why doesn't somebody Why doesn't somebody believe on the Lord Jesus, get saved, stay saved? If you ever wondered that question, Jesus gives this parable to explain this very thing. This is the parable. Jesus explains um, this and also the greatest barrier when it comes to evangelism and discipleship. Last Sunday I told you about the vision I had for this church for fall and winter. That we focus on two things, evangelism and discipleship. And really I kind of split those two up, but they're interconnected between the two. And last week I was 
preaching on a, on a section of scripture, the Great Commission, we normally see that as evangelism, and I was revealing this to you as discipleship. That there's not two classes of Christian, we are called to make disciples. A disciple isn't somebody who's really going to get serious about Christ. It is the bare minimum to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, "If you were, if, um, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If anybody would save his life, he must lose it. If anybody would lose his life, if anybody, if anybody looks to save his life, he'll lose it. If anybody loses his life for my sake, he will save it. Evangelism and discipleship are so interconnected. Now, this portion of Scripture, this parable of Jesus Christ, it's often seen in our sanctification. Sanctification means the process by which God makes us holy. In other words, to make us more like Jesus Christ in thought, word, and deed. It's like we're not there yet, right? Hopefully nobody here is like, I'm perfect, Pastor Jason. I'm not perfect. God looks at me and he has to chisel away. There's a famous sculpture and they ask him, how do you get a, how do you get a horse out of this block of marble? He says, it's easy. I just take away everything that doesn't look like a horse. So God looks at you and me. The Holy Spirit looks at you and me. And he sees stuff spiritually that doesn't look like Jesus. And in our cooperation, we let him chisel it away. It's not our work, our action, but it's, it's the submitting to the Holy Spirit action of making us more like Jesus Christ. This portion of scripture is often seen in part of our sanctification, our discipleship, but actually it's evangelism. It's about who hears God's word and it bears fruit. Fruit, in this circumstance, in this context, is salvation. Jesus taught in parables. The Matthew portion of this parable, Christ's disciples ask him why he teaches in parables. In Mark, in Mark chapter 4, in the portion we didn't read, Jesus answers them. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But those outside, everything is in parables. So let me talk, stop right here and talk about what a parable is and is not. So a parable is a, a short story. And it has just really kind of a couple takeaways. You're not supposed to analyze it, and here's what this is, here's what this is. A lot of times those things are self-apparent. Really, if you're going to do that, that's an allegory. Jesus didn't teach allegory, he taught parables. So surprisingly enough, though, a lot of people, because they see this parable of Jesus having multiple parts, not just one part, and they're like, well, this must be added in later by church officials. And if there's, a lot of, there's a lot of assumptions that are wrong in that, first of all, this isn't an allegory because not every bit of this is explained, only the soils. We're not even really told who the person who is sowing is. We find that out through Matthew 28, what we read last week, where the sowers, where the ones spreading the seed, the word of God to those around us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is a multi-part parable and not an allegory. So some people thought that this should be taken out because um, because it was an allegory. Jesus doesn't teach in allegories. This is a false assumption. Because if this is an allegory, that means Jesus didn't speak. That means that Jesus did speak in allegories. So enough with the nerd stuff. Let me get into the actual scripture here. Um, the crowds. The crowds are mentioned here in verse 1. Um, the crowds are a big part of Jesus' ministry. As you read throughout the Gospels, you read about the crowds. Then you have in this part, the crowds are so numerous, Jesus decides to teach on a boat. Another time, the crowds are so numerous, they are pressing against Jesus. They just want, like, basically, they want to touch him. It's kind of like that celebrity fervor. 
And everybody, did, they just want a piece of Jesus. And there's this woman with an issue of blood, and she thinks, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. Everybody's pressing around Jesus. Everybody's touching Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus, he's like, who touched me? And the disciples are like, Lord, everybody is touching you. What are you talking about? He's like, no, power went out of me. There's another time where he feeds 5,000, another he feeds 4,000 men. That does not include the women and the children. So these huge groups follow Jesus, but they also left Jesus when he gave them a hard teaching. And if you remember, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they shout out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They take their cloaks, and those who didn't have cloaks took palm branches, and that's Palm Sunday. Because that's Palm Sunday, we know that later in the week that same crowd who said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, started shouting, crucify him. Jesus didn't care about man's approval, and neither should be. Verses 1 through 10 is the parable itself. When Jesus talks about these people um, going on, verse 11 here, and he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those who are outside, everything is in parables, so that, and this is a quote from Isaiah, they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand. At least they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus, from this point in time in Galilee, will teach it nothing but parables for this very reason. It's a judgment from God. I'm going to talk, we're going to talk about the soil of our hearts. Sometimes we harden our hearts, and sometimes God hardens our hearts. This is a judgment from God that they would not know, that they would have to come to Jesus and ask him to explain, like in this parable. Furthermore, Jesus explains as well that if they don't understand this parable, they're not going to understand the rest of the parables. This is the linchpin of the future parables in chapter 4 and going forward. To understand what the seed is, what the kingdom is. It's all about bearing fruit. The seed gets sown everywhere. In that, time, in that day and age, they did not plant their crops in rows. And that's what we do today. It's a very, very smart thing to do. Now, they would go out into a field, and you would have people who would uh, plant the seeds. They were sowers. And I thought about doing this today, because when I used to teach this to teenagers, I would have like a bag full of sunflower seeds, and I would just like throw it at them the whole service. <laughs> but I thought adults may not appreciate that, especially in their Sunday clothes. So I decided not to do that. I mean, literally this morning, I thought about running to Hy-Vee and picking up some, but I didn't do it. So they used the broadcast method. Um, that does not come from journalism. That does not come from uh, radio or TV or anything. Broadcast, it means exactly what you you hear in the word, broadcast. They did not plant it in there. They would just go out in the field, and they would take, they would have these satchels full of seed, and they would just fling it out, and hopefully go somewhere where it can, where it can uh, germinate and it can, and it can grow. They would then plow the fields and try to mix up those seeds and, uh, and whatever else is around there. This is a story that was, it's kind of like a, a dust story. Everybody knows this. But there's a deeper spiritual truth in here. It's about bearing fruit, not just simply planting a seed. Bearing fruit is a common phrase in the scriptures. The kind of fruit differs on what is being sown and what is being taken in. John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verse 8, tells the Pharisees to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. 
while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it may be more fruitful. We are told you judge a tree by its fruit, an expression to explain that a person's, what a person says they believe should be reflected in their life. A person who harps on and on and on about helping the poor, they should be helping the poor themselves. You have, John, you have Jesus again in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. That little bit of context right there really undermines a lot of people's, um, a lot of people who just quote that last little part of that verse. Um, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is kind of an aside, it's free, it's not connected to the rest of my thing. But that's if you are bearing fruit in Christ, that your desires have now changed. That is not carte blanche to pray for a Mercedes a hundred times and God is going to give you a Mercedes. You know, praying in the name of Christ, hope I don't go too big of a tangent, we don't have a lot of time today. But praying in the name of Jesus Christ is not magic words. It's not magic words, not bippity-boppity-boo, Jesus. It's actually something very much grounded in Jesus' day. If you were an official of Rome and you came in the name of Caesar, it meant, I am in, it's as though Caesar himself was here. I am praying, I am speaking in the authority of Caesar. I am, bringing, I am speaking according to the will of Caesar. Because if somebody dared spoke in Caesar's name, but it wasn't Caesar's will, yikes, bites. We pray in the name of Christ. We pray in the authority of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go and make disciples. It's in that authority that we go and make disciples. It's in that authority that we pray in Jesus' name. We pray according to his will, which should be our will if we are bearing fruit. Amen. And then we pray, we, we pray once again, authority and the will and those Christ himself was here. In Galatians chapter 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, um, that will one also reap. For the one who sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. This is Paul talking about the fruit of the Spirit. If God is doing a work inside of us, it should just express itself. It's not works. It's not like I go out to try to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. It's not like today I'm like, I'm going to be more patient. But God, do such a work in me that the fruit of my life is patience. And that others can see this in me. That's one of the things I would pray when I was a teenager. I'd go to school every year. And this year I was like, God, make me more loving. And God, I'm not going to ask people, am I more loving? Put it on someone's heart to tell me, Jason, you're just a good friend. Jason, I can just see how much you love the people around you. Because if I have to tell people to tell me that, it doesn't really mean anything, right? Or if I can jolt them. I want to see the fruit inside of me. That's the idea of this. What is being planted in me is being seen outwardly. In this, in this particular parable, it is the seed of the kingdom, meaning this is salvation itself. This is one of the better-known parables of Jesus. It's, it's, uh, it, but however, it's often one that doesn't get lived. We read this and we're tempted to say, well, I am saved, I don't need to be concerned. But you should be concerned. Because in our discipleship, this also applies. In our becoming more like Jesus Christ, this applies. You are constantly receiving the Word of God. Is it constantly bearing fruit inside of you, or is it constantly being, being put to the side? 
This is something that also influences our discipleship, even though it's primarily about evangelism, how people get saved. So today, we'll see how far I get today. I was telling my wife I was going to go over this. I could do, one pastor said he could do 20 sermons on this. I don't know if I could do 20 sermons on this. I'm trying to get through the whole thing today. But don't worry, I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to talk fast at the end to try to fit it all in. If I don't get where I'm going to get, I'll just end it um, after a couple of these and we'll finish it at a different time. But the first type of dirt here is the dirt along the path. The dirt along the path, the soil along the path is hard. It has no chance to take in the seed which, uh, for the seed that is being sown, that is being thrown onto it. It would be kind of like throwing seed on concrete. It has no chance of being, uh, of being put into the soil to produce anything. For farmers, for farmers in Jesus' day, there was a problem with animals constantly eating the seed. That's one of the things that Jesus says, that, he, that the, the sower throws the seed along the path and birds come and pick it up. So in his explanation, Jesus says in this portion of Scripture, let me just check real quick here, um, this portion of Scripture, that the birds are... Satan. There we go. Sorry, in another portion it's the evil one, and the other portion is the devil. Um, this is in all synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, so, um, uh, thematically and metaphorically, birds in these parables do end up becoming the devil. You find in Revelation when it talks about Babylon, that's a haunt for unclean birds. It's another way of saying demons and devils and, and Satan himself here. The dirt along the path is a hard heart. It is a person who does not want to hear anything of God's word. And the devil is right there to take it away before they have a chance to consider and to be saved. This is like the crowds who are following Jesus. This is like a group of people called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious professionals of Jesus' day. They seemed holy. They knew God's word forward and backwards, but Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They looked great on the outside, but the inside they were corrupt. And they would not hear of what Jesus says in Mark 3, 22, so right before this, and the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. What is happening in this parable, he talks about the seed along the, along the path is people, they don't want to hear anything of it. They will not take and consider, they just assume everything, I can't hear this. It's a hard heart. Before Jesus gives them the meaning of this parable, he explains why he preaches in parables in the first place. These are grace to the humble, but judgment to the proud. They are grace to the humble, but judgment to the proud. The proud will say, I already know what Jesus is talking about here, so I don't need to ask it. The humble come to Jesus like his disciples and say, Teacher, tell us what this means. It's really, it's really a litmus test to see who is there to see, to see a show. I don't know if you've watched The Greatest Showman um, with, uh, with Hugh Jackman Wolverine. One of my favorite movies. This is The Greatest Show. A lot of people saw Jesus that way. They wanted to see a show. They wanted to see healing. Herod the, Herod the Great, that when he was brought before, when Jesus was brought before him, he wanted to see a miracle. He wanted to see a sign. In parables, this is Jesus' 
litmus test to see who's just there to be fed and who's there to be fed spiritually. That is kind of the nature of the parables, to see the hard hearts versus the soft hearts. There's a spiritual blindness. The most important aspect of evangelism is prayer. Why? Because it's not a questioning mind that you have to convince. It's hard ground that needs to be tilled up. It's a dead spirit that needs to come to life. If the soul remains uncultivated, then you get one of those first three soils. Please note, in all of these soils, they do not produce fruit. In some of these, in church, in church in times past, we would have said, these people are saved. Jesus says, no, they're not. They produce fruit. Talk about that in a second with the other one. This one's easy. The seed doesn't even go in. There's no fruit to be, be taken from any plant because the plant is unable to grow. This is like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. There would be a play, Pharaoh would come to his senses, and then all of a sudden he would take back what he had said. It says that he hardened his heart. So there would be another play, he'd come to his senses, he'd say, oh yeah, it's fine. And then he'd harden his heart, and he would demand they don't go. Got to tell him again, let my people go, let my people go. And then there comes a time where God, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Today, if you hear his word, do not turn away. That's what Romans says as those in days past did. Fair, um, hard heart. Um, he gives chance after chance, and finally he hardens this man's heart for him. C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce, and in the end, there are those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, Thy will be done. And essentially that is, that is, Inwardly, the heart of everyone who does end up in prayer one day is the person who doesn't want anything with God. Ultimately, it's a hard heart. So what do we pray pray in this time? Our most powerful weapon in evangelism is prayer. For each soil, there is something that we should pray in this regard for ourselves if it's just the truth of God that we're having a hard time accepting. Maybe Maybe we have a hard heart toward God in a certain area in our life. And God wants to till that up. And there's teachings, I mean, I often say, if you consistently read your Bible every day, if you do not come across a scripture that doesn't rub you the wrong way, you're not really reading it. Like you're reading the words on the page, but you're not bringing it in. We ask God to search us to find us. So we do it in ourselves or in somebody else's heart. We pray Ezekiel 36.26. Ezekiel 36.26. I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit in you. I will, I will remove from you your heart of stone, and will give you a heart of flesh. In the metaphor, you are praying for a tilling up of the ground. So that's what we would do, right? If you had a piece of your land that you wanted to plant on, you would need to till it up. You would need to make the hard soil, and you would need to make it soft. So that's what we pray. When we spread the word around, when we tell people the goodness of Jesus Christ, we pray for them that the hard heart might become soft. If we're having a hard time with something in the scripture, we ask for ourselves, God, make my heart a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Speaking of stones, that is the second type of soil, the rocky dirt. Now, I'm not calling rocky Olmstead dirt, it's just rocky dirt. <laughs> I bet you all had this experience because we are in Iowa. I grew up in North Dakota. None of my family farms, but... 
My first couple jobs when I was just a type, you know, 10, 11, 12, was picking rocks. And I can just see everybody's back kind of jump a little bit when I say that, because you know what I'm talking about, right? It doesn't seem that hard for the first five minutes, but after three hours, you don't even want to see a rock again. None of my family farms, but okay, there was not a lot of jobs in my, in my town, so if I wanted some money, there was always a farmer who needed rocks picked around time of planting. And because of this reason, and then also bailing would be another one, um, because of this, I assume what Jesus is talking about here to mean that there is rocks in the soil that need to be picked out. It's actually not. They would have already done this long before they would have had anybody, um, anybody out there to sow seed. There's actually a, a bigger problem, a worse problem than that. Um, Israel had um, these large limestone deposits just in different places in the soil around Israel. And you know how you find out is you would sow a field, you'd get a crop in, but you'd notice a section of your field. It, it was going really well for a while, then it would just die. They would then dig, 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 and they'd find just a bunch of limestones around here. So the plant could spring up, and it sprung up quite fast because there is a layer of soil, but it's not deep enough. There's rocks underneath that soil, and the plant can, does not have a chance to grow and to bear fruit. This obviously makes more sense with what Jesus is talking about here. Instead of just rocks in the soil, it's rocks underneath the soil. You know, in this, Jesus, when he explains this, this is the person who receives the word of God with joy, but when trouble and persecution happens, they turn away. That's because enthusiasm does not equal saved. Enthusiasm does not make a child of the kingdom. In years past, and currently, when we look at, it, when we look at evangelism, we don't take into account this parable when we really need to, because that's what it's about. So we'll have, and let me tell you, I have nothing bad to say about Billy Graham. But you'll have these crusades, and like a million people get saved, and we'll say that. And how dare we don't know the hearts. We have stuff in Scripture to see whether or not somebody has passed from death to life, but we don't use that rubric. We're just like, we're just like hands up, where do you find that in Scripture? Say a prayer, and you're saved. We don't find that in Scripture. What we find in Scripture is that there are those who receive the message of God with gladness, but they have no root, meaning they're not saved. Because enthusiasm does not equal a child. It's why, for the longest time, I would not say who got saved at a service. One, because I don't know. Christ has not given me the gift to look into hearts. Two, so much of the things outwardly is stuff that happens over time. Inwardly, you have the witness of the Holy Spirit. So I'll ask you, do you know you're going to heaven today? I'm asking you that question today. Are you going to heaven today if you die? You have a witness of the Holy Spirit in your life that says, I am a child of God. When I pass from this life, there is a life beyond this life that I should be with the one whom I love. You have an inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. Outwardly, you are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You should look more holy every year. There are times where we backslide, times of unfaithfulness, and it's a terrible time for, this, for, the, for the child of God. We should never be happy in our disobedience. That's a, that's a warning sign that maybe we're not a child of God. That the, there, should be a, there should be fruit that people can see in our life. 
There's a word in the Greek that is found in, in 2 Corinthians and in Galatians. It's pseudodelphios. Pseudodelphios. It means false brothers. False brethren. Meaning those who are a part of our community, who are part of churches, who don't know the Lord. This is something that I'm not very happy with as a pastor, because you like to imagine everybody who's here, everybody's on the same page, we are all of one in the Spirit. That is not the case. And the scripture makes this case over and over and over again, that there are those who go out from us, but they were never with us. Why do these specific people seem to throw away a faith that they never really have, even though they had such enthusiasm about this faith? He says, tribulation and persecution. I'll talk about persecution, and then I'll talk about tribulation. Persecution is not always somebody with a gun to your head saying, deny Christ. It would rarely ever start that way. Even in areas where there is deep persecution, it doesn't always start that way. In Rome, for instance, we know about the Colosseum, we know about the burnings at the stake, we know about all the martyrs. It doesn't start off that way. It started off with mockery. They called the early Christians uh, ghouls or vampires because they heard how they would have a supper in which they would eat the flesh and drink the blood of some man. They knew better, but they were, they were slandering them. They said that they were just a bunch of people, you know, incest, because they had called one another brother and sister, including their wives. They knew better, but they were mocking them. It starts off with mocking. In fact, the oldest confirmed um, evidence, physical evidence we have of graffiti, comes from ancient Rome in the first century, and it's called Aleximandios Graffitio. And what it, what, it, what it is, is a picture of a uh, donkey being crucified, and a man bowing down to the donkey, and it says... Alexamendios worships his God. Mockery of Christians. So, not all persecution is, is somebody with a gun to your head saying, deny Christ. It's also those little things that cost you to be a child of God. In the past 10, 20 years, we've seen so many people fall to this. And then you see what the heart is, right? That when, it, when to be associated with Jesus Christ means you get called names, and you're like, I don't want to be associated with Jesus Christ. That's a person the seed has fallen amongst the rocks, the rocky soil. Tribulation. Big churchy word, all it means is trouble. When we talk about the great tribulation, we are not talking about the persecution. This is probably one of the biggest uh, mistakes people make in end times theology in the book of Revelation. We see it as only that seven year period of persecution. That's not the great tribulation. The great tribulation starts in, in uh, right after, as soon as John gets the vision. Because what tribulation means is trouble. And it's a time of great trouble. <coughs> so all the troubles in life, you know, there's a sense that when people tell you, come to Jesus Christ, then all your, all your troubles will go away. So somebody's in Jesus Christ and they're so excited. They come to the convention and they're hopping around. There's all these people around them so positive. And then God allows something bad to happen. This is why we get so many false converts. People who are inoculated to the gospel. And you tell them the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're like, I've already done that. It didn't work out. Jesus let my grandma, grandpa, father, mother, sister, brother, wife, husband die. I got fired from the job for no reason. People at that church treated me so badly. Trouble and persecution came, and they, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus anymore. They had no roots to keep them. And that's really sad, because the sweetest times in my life, the sweetest moments of praise in my life, was when I had nothing in my heart or in my head to praise God about, 
but I chose anyway to bless his name. Amen. Sort of Job. God allows so much suffering in Job's life. His children die. I can't imagine. All of his livelihood is gone in an instant. It's like one thing after another. And what does Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. And there was times in my life where I had nothing in my heart, nothing in my head to praise God for, but I say, you are still worthy of my praise. Amen. And there was a breakthrough that happened. There was a breakthrough that happened. There's this uh, story, I've been trying to confirm the veracity of it, and you may have heard it as well, of a greenhouse who had a number of trees inside of it. Some trees they staked down, some trees they left free hanging, and some trees they would shake every day. Which seems weird, right? Because in a greenhouse there's no wind. These are trees. And um, the idea in the study was to see how much does wind play a part in keeping trees strong. The uh, trees that were staked down, they had a certain amount of roots and they were, they were holding pretty good. The, the strongest trees, though, the, were the ones that were constantly being shook. There were other trees that couldn't even take their own weight and they just fell right down. Those are the trees they just left alone. The times of trial and tribulation in our life, they produce in us, they produce in us roots that grow deep, that make us strong. I talked before about that old-timey word metal that we don't use anymore. God wants to produce so much metal in you to be strong in your faith. He does that in times of persecution and trouble. But if you're the rocky soil, you, you throw it away because you never really have it. Fall away, stumble, offended. The word at the end of 17 is uh, translated in those three ways. The word is um, skandazeo. It can be translated several different ways, but it all means the same thing, to fall away. Strong's Concordance says this about the word. To lay a snare for, to set a trap for, to cause to stumble or fall, to give offense or scandal to anyone. I thought that was interesting because I was reading in that and I read through different translations as I'm making my message. And I also look into the Greek and Hebrew. And I'm like, I've seen that word before. I wonder where I've seen that word before at the end of that. And Becca's at the female with me and I'm doing this and all of a sudden she hears me say, I knew it. I knew it. I've seen this word before. I know this word before, this specific word. You know this word is also before? See, John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest born among women. So that means greatest ever, right? He said the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. But he said he's the greatest born of women, so he's not, he's not somebody who doesn't know the Lord. So he knows, he knows Jesus. He jumped for joy in the womb when he was by, when he was by Jesus. And um, so... John the Baptist, he does his ministry, and then he is locked up for preaching righteousness, for preaching truth to power. So he sends his disciples to Jesus because he's locked up all the time, and he's like, thought the revolution was happening sometime. Am I really going to stay in here? And there is parts in our life, even if we're saved, where we have kind of like that rocky soil, where the trouble and persecution happens, and it, it breaks us a bit. John the Baptist, this is a breaking moment because he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one or should we ask or should we wait for another? That's a, that's, 
an outrageous statement for John the Baptist, who says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he's been in jail for a lot longer than he thought. John, like everybody else in his day, he thought the Messiah was coming to kick some Roman butt. <laughs> but here he's in jail, and he, he you know, he, he called out Herod um, for, for, for his licentiousness, and he's in jail, and he's wondering, how come I'm not out yet? How come Jesus hasn't stopped by to let me out? So Jesus tells John's disciples, he quotes from Isaiah, one of those messianic verses. He doesn't quote, he actually explains how he's fulfilling the messianic verses. He says, look around you, the deaf hear, the blind see. This is going to blow your mind. Not a miracle in the Old Testament, the blind see. That was a proof of the Messiah. The blind would see. So, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and he doesn't include one thing that's in Isaiah that's very important to John. Freedom for the captives. This is so. This is such a dagger for John. It's not what you think. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the Christ figure of Aslan, people continually ask, is he safe? And they say, he's not safe, he's good. After all, he's not a tame lion. Where we get the hardness of heart here is when we want him to be a tame we want a pet Jesus who is a genie in a bottle who will make all my troubles go away. And I still have my troubles. So Jesus, he doesn't include that. Yeah. The point couldn't be made more clear. I am the one, and you're going to die. But it's okay because you're safe in the Father's hands. Yeah. When we look at our own life, when we ask the Holy Spirit to search us, that's the thing that we have to ask. Where in my heart am I being Hard. Maybe you don't know Jesus today. And maybe you're like the path dirt. And everything I've said before, if you come to another church service or you've been coming for a while and you're like, it doesn't mean anything to me. It's just, an, it's just a bunch of myths and legends and things like this. Today my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit has been tilling up the, your heart. And it's hit you harder than it's ever been. It's nothing I've said. In fact, I made a major mistake early on because I didn't mark where I wanted to wanted to point to. So it's not my eloquence or anything like that, but the Holy Spirit's been working something in your life. That's the that's the ground of your heart that's being tilled up. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe maybe you're like the second type of dirt, the one that has that rock, that the, the limestone deposit underneath the underneath the soil. What I mean is, there was time in your life. And people better get out of the way because you're a Jesus freak. You're, 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 you're excited for the things of God. You're on fire. You're all the terms. And then something happened in your life. And you, and you realize, I'm so far from that now. I just, I just, I... Something happened in my life. I'm like, God, you're so good. Why did you let my mom die? Today the Holy Spirit is speaking to you too. He's speaking to you too. And he wants to remove that stone so you would have a heart of flesh. Or maybe in your life you are saved. You legitimately are. You know if you die today, you're going to heaven. But you know you're not living for the Lord in many areas of in your life. Maybe it's because you have a hard heart towards that. Like, I don't care what the Bible says. You know, um, I was wondering whether or not I was going to 
talk about this, but I guess I am. Um, in October, I'm going to be doing a series on the five solas. I'll explain what that is in a bit. The first one is Sola Scriptura, um, which is Latin for the Bible alone. The Bible alone. And like most Christians say, yeah, yeah, Bible's the Word of God. Bible's our standard for faithfulness. And then I'll start like going through the Bible, some inconvenient doctrines that are firmly established in the Bible. And you'll find people are like, well, that's Paul's opinion. <laughs> that's someone's opinion. All of a sudden, all this, all this by the Bible alone, it's the Word of God. Maybe you have something like that in your life. You know what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here. Well, I don't know what I'm talking about in your life, but you know what I'm talking about. God wants to remove that stone. He wants to till up that land. I, uh, I was wondering, my wife even told me I should split up the sermon, I should have listened to it, because I'm going to go ahead and end with these two, I'll do the next two soils um, two weeks from now, next week we have a missionary coming, so excited to hear from Tim and Doris Eckert, um, people I've known since I was like in like 8th grade, um, uh, so I've known them for a long time, God has been expanding their ministry, worship team didn't come up at this time, but already in this parable there's... You should know that there's so much in this. If you're like, no, not nothing in here, that's a warning sign to you. Maybe the devil is trying to pick up those seeds before they can actually do anything. But today, even already in this parable, this week when I was going through this, I was finding stuff in my life. I'm like, God, search me. Where, where's the rocky ground? Where's the hard ground? Where am I not being faithful to you in this area? Where have I not allowed that word to grow inside of me? What does that look like? I remember in ministry, our first call, my Becca's first call, did not go great. Didn't end very well. People didn't treat us the way we thought maybe we should be treated in a, in, in a church. And it was hard for a while. I mean, the temptation was to have a hard heart. The temptation, actually, honestly, was to say, I don't want to be in ministry if it's going to be like this. I'm not even talking about an area of salvation. I mean, I wasn't going to throw away my faith. But I was like, God, did you really call me to ministry? Look at how this worked out. There's stuff in your life where God has called you to something. Now there's something underneath there. God is calling that out to rip up that stone so it might be good soil. Or another area where you're like, I know I'm doing something wrong here, I'm just ignoring it for now. There's no area of our, of our life, there's no area in all of human existence that God, the sovereign overall, does not look at and say, mine. He wants it. True worship is a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2. In view of God's mercy, brothers, I encourage you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, and other translations, acceptable act of worship. Somebody, some people ask me, like, well, which is it? Like, it's both. It's both spiritual, and it's the bare minimum of what God requires of us. Now, when the Holy Spirit finds something in us, and He says, you haven't given me that yet, that's what I want. We try to play this game with God. God, I'll give more in the tithe bucket if I don't have to give up this. If I don't have to give up the flirtation I have with the coworker or whatever it might be. God's like, I don't care about the tithe, the tithe bucket right now. I care about this. 
And I'm not letting this go until we deal with this. Because ultimately it's for our good, right? For we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Today we're going to be singing this last song. I'll end in the blessing. But during this last song, and not just during this time in church, this is the life of a disciple of Christ. As we continually ask the Holy Spirit, search me, find me, see, see any unclean thing in me. And today, if you do not know the Lord, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Fall upon the mercies of God. There's two biblical words, and I, I refuse to dumb these down. It's faith and repentance. Faith doesn't simply mean believe. It means to believe He is who He says He is. To give over your belief to His mind. To trust in Him like as you oh, you would trust a parachute as you're jumping out of a plane. The second one is repentance, which does not only mean feeling bad about what we've done in our life. The word is metanoia, it means a change of mind. That doesn't mean I've just changed my mind about Jesus. It means I've changed my mind about everything. I liken it to lobsters. Lobsters, they fight each other, and if one like really gets beaten bad, his brain dissolves. And a new brain takes hold, a brain that is weak-willed. It has a fight, it'll, it'll scurry away from every fight. Even if it's another lobster, it's, it's trounced in the past. And that will happen until it has a fight it can't avoid, and it wins that fight. And now that brain dissolves, a new brain develops, a brain that's confident, who knows who it is. I liken it to that because when we come to God in repentance, metanoia, <coughs> a change of mind is we now believe He is who He says He is, and we believe we are who He says we are. We were redeemed. We are loved. That for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that who would ever believe in Him may not perish but have everlasting life. This is not simply I agree to this set of doctrine. It's now my whole life is different. I remember when the Lord saved me, I didn't know the vernaculars. I didn't know I was saved. I just had this night where God, the Holy Spirit, spoke to my heart and said, you died tonight, Jason, where are you going? And I tried to make all the excuses in the book, but at the end of the thing, at the end of everything, as God showed me my sin from his point of view, I remember telling God that night, it just broke me, even as a teenager, because I, like, like, like everybody, right? We think we're the good people, right? So at the end of this, God showed me my sin from his point of view, like, God, if you didn't send me from hell, you're not good. And in that moment, to know the grace of God that in my deepest, darkest sin, that Christ died for me. And that God loves me. Not, a, not another version of me that God has his act together, but he loves me where I'm at. I fell asleep that night praying. And I woke up the next morning, and I just, I've described it like this, because I don't know how to describe it. It's like I never saw color before. It's like I never saw light before. Something spiritually had happened that I couldn't even explain. And I pray that for you today. That if you don't know the Lord, today's the day of salvation. Amen. Repent and put your faith in Jesus. Worship team, would you please lead us in, in our salvation?